Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Job, chapter 1. And the, praise the Lord, we do have an answer when the devil knocks. Amen. We have a victory over our enemy. Our enemy is real, and he is uh, ferocious. He, is, he is consu- tries, desires to consume us and destroy us. Uh, but we need to have no doubts about this, that we have already overcome through Christ, the enemy that battles against us. Uh, this is true of the enemy without in Satan. This is also true of the enemy within our flesh. And uh, what Jeff saying this morning is so powerful and so true. Uh, we are redeemed. We have been washed new by the blood of Christ. And we shake off the chains of that sin that desires to, or that shame rather, of our sin that desires to hold us back from all that God has for us. And so we are in week two of our series, When the Devil Knocks. Uh, last week, we talked about the reality that our, our enemy has, has certain weapons that he will use to attack us and come against us. And last week, we talked about the weapon that he desires to use is that of deceit. That he is a liar and the father of all lies. He desires to fill our minds and and bring deceit and lies against us. He wants us to question God's word as well as God's goodness. To doubt God's word and question God's goodness. Now remember, when we start to question God's word, we will automatically question God's goodness. We'll start to question things of why did God say this or that? And then we'll question the motivation behind why God said those things. And we'll begin to think that really God is just desiring to be. I was talking with somebody this week and he said when he was growing up in his Christian home, he said, man, I always thought that God and and my parents were just fun suckers. They just never wanted me to have fun. They always had all these rules and restrictions and all these things I couldn't do. And they were just so, I just never could have fun. But then as this person's gotten older and now in his young thirties, he said, you know, now that he has children, he's trying to get his children to understand. It's not about a lack of fun. It's about boundaries for protection. And because he's realized, he said, man, if I could go back and talk to students like high school students and encourage them with the silly, stupid, ridiculous things that I did that I thought, oh, I know. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. He said, then I got to be, you know, a little bit down the road here in my age. And I realized so many things that were told to me by those around me, my parents, my pastor, all those things, they were there for my good. And so sometimes we begin to question God's goodness when we start to question God's word. We want to know that and realize that Satan is a deceiver who attacks our mind with lies. He is a deceiver who attacks, attacks our mind with lies. But what is the answer? We can stand against his lies By trusting in the word of God and seeking his wisdom. When we trust in the word of God and seek his wisdom, we will stand against the enemy and his lies that come against us. This morning, as we kind of kick off week two of our series, we want to know that our enemy is not only a liar, but he's also an accuser. We're going to talk about Satan, the accuser, this morning. You see, Satan is the accuser who attacks your heart with accusations. In your bulletin, there should be an outline. If you desire to take notes, you can. Um, and there'll be some things you can fill in there as we go. Um, if you missed something, please talk to me after service. I had somebody last week say, okay, I missed this one. What was this one? And so we want to get those to you. We want you to have this. Um, also, for those watching online, you can actually have this uh, available there as well. It'll be all filled in online. There'll be a link you can click once it's posted, and you'll be able to see that as well, the notes that go along with this message. And so the truth we have to understand is that Satan is the accuser who attacks your heart with accusations. He's a deceiver who attacks our mind with lies, and he's the accuser who attacks our hearts with accusations. Job chapter 1, 
verses 9 through 10. We're going to look at a very familiar story. And many of us have heard the story of Job or Job, depending on your pronunciation. I'm not going to judge. You can say it however you want. But when you know this story and you read this story, this book is so powerful. Um, I believe we did a study through this book a few years back. And when you read this first chapter, we find out the backstory. We get kind of the, the precursor to what's going to happen. But we have to always remind ourselves when we read the book of Job that Job doesn't know the reason. Job doesn't know what's going on that's leading to everything that Job experiences. When you read through the book of Job, it starts off when Job gets involved with all the attacks of Satan and the things that happen to him. He actually goes through a season of trying to figure out why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this? Now we know the story, right? Job has some friends. You guys remember Job's friends? Well, Job's friends come along, and for the first little bit, they do a really good job of just sitting with him and, and just weeping with him and just spending some time with him as a friend should and can. But then we find at a point in the book, the friends start to share their opinions and start to speak to why Job is going through all this. You know, Job, and I'm summarizing here, if you would just get your heart right with God, if you just confess your sin, you'd be fine. You know, Job, the reason you're going through all this is because God is judging you because of your sin. Now, we know the backstory, so as we're hearing that, is that true that God is just judging Job because of his sin? Taking everything from him to, to persecute him because he's such a wretched sinner? No, and in reality, why is Job being tested? Because he walks with God. Now, was Job a perfect man, sinless, never sinned? Of course not. He was a human being. We know he sinned. We don't know the specific sins, but we find later on in the book, maybe he's got a little bit of a pride issue. Maybe a little bit of an arrogance at some point. But either way, we know the reason for the trials is not his sin. It's in fact the opposite. It's because he walks with God, because he desires to please God in all things, that Satan is coming after him to try to go after who? God the Father. We said this last week, we have to know our enemy doesn't care about us. So many times we think, well, Satan's coming after me because I'm this or I'm that, or he wants to destroy me as though it's somehow about me. It's not about you. The battle's not about you. See, Satan only comes after you because you're the crown and creation of the one that he hates most. And he desires to hurt the father, but he can't attack the father directly. And we're going to find out here he's actually in subjection to the father because our God is greater. Amen. They are not equals, co-battling in the universe. This is not Greek mythology where two gods are just battling it out as equals. No, no, no. There is no one equal to our God. He is greater. I don't care what it is. I don't care who it is or the battle you're going through. God is greater. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so we have God, ruler, creator. Satan is in subjection to him, but Satan hates him. He wants to take his throne. He wants to sit on the throne of God. And if you know the story, Satan actually was a glorious angel. An angel of great light. Some believe that he actually uh, was around the throne reflecting the glory of God back on God. And in that position, desired to sit on the throne of God. His pride was his greatest downfall. We're going to get into that next week. We think sometimes of specific sins that are worse sins than others. We're going to talk about pride and the damage that can do in our lives. But Satan desires to take the throne. And so he rises up against God. God casts him out of heaven. And then we see the story unfold where from then on, he does nothing but try to destroy all that God has created. He goes after Eve. He goes after Adam. He comes after us. He goes after Job. He comes after Jesus. So we see he's only doing this because he's desiring to destroy and pervert and corrupt everything God made. And at the end of Genesis and creation, God said everything was very good. 
And then chapter 3 opens up and Satan's on the scene trying to corrupt and destroy what was very good. Now, let me also say this. This doesn't advocate or advocate us for personal responsibility. Right? We're still responsible for our own choices. I can't go, yeah, I sinned, but Satan made me do it. Right? We don't get that card. Now, can Satan tempt us? Of course he can. He will. He'll create opportunities. In the world we live in, there'll be opportunities to sin. Right? All around us, we see temptation within, in our flesh, without, in the world. Satan draws us and entices us and wants us to sin. But when I make a sin choice, God is very clear in Genesis 3. We answer for our sin. Individually, we're responsible for that. I don't answer for my wife's sin. She doesn't answer for mine. When we stand before God one day, I don't get to go, God, she's okay. She's with me. If anything, you know it's going to be the other way around. I hope Sam just like, okay, yeah, he's, he's kind of with me. He's all right, okay? That's how it's really going to go. We know I ain't getting in. She might get in on her own. I'm not getting in. But when you think about that, we have to answer for our own sin. So, again, we recognize the enemy. We know he's there. But we have to realize we still have a choice to make. He can entice us and tempt us and lure us away. But we have a choice to make. So I want to look at Job chapter 1. And I want to talk about not only is Satan a deceiver, he's also an accuser. And so this is the backstory to the book of Job. Job chapter 1 and verses 9 through 10. Now, we're not going to read the whole thing. It's kind of interesting, the back and forth between these two, but you can read it for yourself, obviously. So chapter 1, verse 9. Then Satan, uh, then Satan answered, and the word Satan usually means adversary, just enemy or foe. Then Satan answered, and sa- and answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for naught? Hast thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. So what's Satan saying here? You know, God, why does Job fear you? Why would he ever fear you? He's not going to fear you because you've blessed him so much. He has everything. By the way, he only follows you and is good to you and faithful to you because you've blessed him so much. You know what the accusation is against Job? It's against his character. Job doesn't really love you, God. He's only loving you and serving you and faithful to you because you've blessed him. If you took that away, if you took away all those blessings and removed that hedge of protection about him, he'd walk away from you. He doesn't really love you. Man, he is an accuser. And he's accusing the character of Job. He's attacking the very character of Job. Now, so many have asked, well, why Job? Why did Job get picked? Why does Job get picked? Why does Satan go after Job? Whose idea was it to recommend Job to be uh, the subject of this conversation? Who brings him up? God brings up Job. Satan is trying to accuse God's people, and God recommends Job as an example. And then Satan goes, well, you know, he only does this because of this. So just to let you know, God allowed this to take place. God wasn't overcome by the power of Satan. He had no choice in the matter. No, God allows this to take place. So see, here's the reality. God will allow others, the flesh and the world, Satan, to tempt us and to come against us. God allows that. But don't ever think that God allows something that he doesn't also give us the power to overcome. Yeah, he allows Satan to come after us. He allows the world to tempt us. He allows our flesh to tempt us. But he also says in his word over and over and over again, Old and New Testament, if you will just turn to me, if you repent and turn to me, if you trust in me, if you lean on my understanding, if you come to me, there is no temptation taken you but that which is common to man, Paul says in the New Testament. 
See, constantly he's telling us, if you would just turn to me, I will give you the strength to endure. I will strengthen you through this. I will be with you. What does Jesus tell Peter? Satan desires to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. You might say, man, that's a powerful truth that that Jesus prayed for Peter. You know, Hebrew says that he's praying for you and for me right now. He prays for us to be strong, to withstand the enemy. He tells us over and over again, weapons that we have at our disposal to stand against the enemy. Right? Ephesians 6, the armor of God. How about the reality of the fact that we can walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh? That's a weapon. When we walk in the spirit of God, which he allows us to do graciously, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So when the flesh tempts us, what's the answer? To walk in the spirit and trust in Christ. Trust in his grace. And so we have an enemy that is going to come against us. God allows him to do this, but he never leaves us without a defense. He never leaves us helpless. He is always with us in Christ. Here we read in Job chapter 1, an amazing scene in God's courtroom, if you will, where Satan accuses Job before God as only being faithful because God blesses him. Satan tries to accuse us before God as well. Not only does he try to accuse us before God, he also brings accusations against us directly. He wants to remind us of our sin and draw us into thinking we aren't good enough, that our sin is too great, and that there's no way God could ever use someone like you, that there's no way God could ever use someone like me. I'm going to ask that we would pray and just ask God to give us wisdom in this, that we would know our standing in Christ, to know that we are forgiven and free in Christ, and that our enemy, when the accusations come, that we can stand against him. Father, we ask that you would do a great work today. We know that we have an enemy who is real, who wars against us, who desires to to pull us down and to attack us and defeat us who desires to destroy all that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that when that enemy comes and begins to whisper those accusations against us, I pray that we would stand against him with the truth of your word, the reality of salvation, the power of grace. And we can stand and say that we are forgiven and we are free and we are in Christ. And that these accusations mean nothing. Father, I pray that you'd give us wisdom in all of this. And thank you for your word, which enlightens our heart and mind to know the truth. So, Father, again, pray that you would be glorified in all of this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in your notes there, you're going to see the accuser. The accuser. Now, let me be clear. We've all faced accusations from the enemy if we're a follower of Christ. Um, I'll be honest with you. I'll be transparent with you. As a pastor, I've faced accusations. I've not lived a perfect life. No one in this room has. And even as a pastor, a follower of Christ, I've reacted in situations that weren't the way God would have me react. I've lost my temper at times. I've said things to people. I've done things that I would not believe pleases God. I've done that as a pastor. So let me just be real with you for a second. Satan has brought those accusations against me. Well, you know, a pastor would never have said that. You call yourself a pastor, never would have done that. Oh, you call yourself a pastor? Oh, no. And here's the thing, because the enemy starts to, force a a misconception on us of what God's calling us to. The enemy brings this idea that we're supposed to be perfect, that we're supposed to get everything right all the time. And when we fall and we fail, that somehow that disqualifies us and God can no longer use us because, well, you weren't perfect. But that's a misconception, right? God doesn't call us to be perfect. Nowhere in this world are we called to be perfect. We're called to be faithful. We're called to be followers. 
And so when we fail and when we fall, we go to him and we say, Lord, I, I repent of that. I turn from that and ask you to give me the strength to not do that again. But that doesn't stop the enemy from giving those whispers, does it? You ever have the enemy try to remind you of something that you know you're forgiven of? You know you've repented of? You know you've turned from? God's given you victory, but that accusation remains. I'm telling you, it's not just for the average believer or the normal Christian, if you want to call it that. It's for all of us who, followers, who are followers of Christ. Missionaries, pastors, teachers, deacons, it doesn't matter. We all face the enemy. We all are in this world. And so I'm telling you from firsthand experience, I've had to have these battles at times in my life where the enemy is saying to me, you know, a real pastor, a good pastor would never have said that to that person. A real pastor wouldn't have lost his temper while driving in traffic and somebody slammed on his brakes in front of you. That never, a real pastor would never get mad about that. A real pastor would never get upset with their kids for doing things that cause damage to the home. Or the garage door when they decide to push the button and then ride the garage door up and burn the motor out. No pastor would ever get mad enough to raise his voice. A good pastor would say, oh, peace, be still, my heart. I'm sorry, I forgive you, child. I'm going to tell you right now, that's not the words that came out of my mouth. See, these are the things, like we, we have this enemy. And we joke about some of the stuff, but it's, it can be serious too. But we have to remind ourselves, nowhere does God call us to be perfect. He calls us to be faithful. And so when the accuser comes and accuses us of not being perfect, we merely smile and say, I know, that's why I need grace. See, when the devil talks to you, this is in your notes there, the accuser, there's the first point there. When the devil talks to you about God, he lies. When the devil talks to you about God, he lies. As we said last week, Satan will always distort God's character to us. He will always distort God's character. He wants us to think that he can't forgive and that the gospel is unable to truly redeem and save someone like you, someone like me. You can't, you can't really be saved. You can't really be redeemed. Or if we believe we're redeemed, we believe it's redeemed with conditions. Yeah, God saved me, but only if I continue to do thus and so well. But is that grace? Is it grace if there's conditions on how I receive the grace? No, that's works. But when it's conditionless, other than just receiving of that grace, merely to respond and say, God, I just received what you've already offered to me. There's no conditions. We don't do anything to keep it because we don't do anything to merit or earn it. Again, we stand on the word and wisdom of God. We have to get that. We have to understand that when the devil talks to you about God, he lies. When the devil talks to you about you, he accuses. It's another point there in your notes. When the devil talks to you about you, he accuses. Let me just give you this word of encouragement. Satan will never say anything encouraging to you unless it's to encourage you to sin. He'll never try to encourage you. But he will always attack and discourage you when you're doing what God has called you to do. He will never encourage you, but he will always discourage you away from the things of God. When the devil talks to you about you, he accuses. We have an enemy that wants to remind us of our sin and make us quit. Turn away from God and hide in shame. I was just yesterday, I think it was yesterday. Some of you guys know there's a, a comedian by the name of John Christ. And he's a pretty funny guy. But he, uh, he went through a season of just really horrible 
moments in his life. He made some very uh, poor decisions, some sin decisions in his life. Some of those things became known. He had to face those things, went through rehab for some things. And I was listening to him share a testimony yesterday that he said that not that long ago, he, he was at a point of wanting to take his own life because he just couldn't handle the shame and the guilt and all the weight of everything that he went through, the decisions he made, the choices he made, and how it was just wearing on him. But I'm going to tell you guys right now, when those feelings come and when the enemy wants to whisper those accusations against us, we don't have to quit. We don't have to give in. I'm so thankful that his story didn't end that way, that he repented and turned and followed after Christ, and now God is using him again. It's just amazing to see how when we just merely repent and turn away and say, God, no, I need you, and we stop listening to the accusations of the enemy, God will strengthen us to continue on in what he's called us to do because it's all about him and not about us. He knows, the enemy knows that we carry our sins with us. See, if you've ever committed a sin as a follower of Christ, you know that sin. You remember it. You might not think about it as often as you used to, but you're never going to forget it. And the enemy wants to drag that memory up and drag that sin up and then put it in our face and remind us of it and remind us of it and remind us of it so that we'll go, okay, I can't do this. I quit. I'm walking away. Because God doesn't use people like me who do things like this. See, that's what the enemy wants. But we have to stand on the truth of God's word and say, no, 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 no. That's already under the blood. God has already forgiven me that. Not because I'm good enough, but because he's greater. And I'm not going to allow that to dictate to me who I am in Christ. In the famous book, Pilgrim's Progress, many of you probably read this in school at some point. There's a scene between the accuser and the character known as Christian. And I love this excerpt from the book Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan wrote the book, and it's just an amazing story of the, the kind of experiences that we have as believers, as followers of Christ. This is an excerpt from the book, and it says this. One of Apollyon's ploys is to recite a laundry list of Christian's sins, Christian being the character who represents the Christian. It says this. Thou didst faint at first, setting out, when thou was almost choked in the gulf of despond. Thou didst attempt wrong ways to be rid of thy burden, whereas thou shouldest have stayed till thy prince had taken it off. Thou didst sinfully sleep and loose thy choice thing. Thou wast almost, uh, also almost persuaded to go back at the sight of the lions. And when thou talkest of thy journey and of what thou hast heard and seen, thou art inwardly desirous of vain glory in all that thou sayest and doest. So Apollyon represents the accuser or Satan, and he's attacking Christian. And what is his method of attack? And just a laundry list of sins. Hey, remember when we started this whole thing out and you almost quit? Hey, remember when you quit over here? Hey, remember when you abandoned this way? Hey, remember when you went this way instead of that way? Hey, remember when you were recounting your story and it's really about just your own pride and arrogance and glory and you want the attention? I mean, just going on and on and on. And I'm just going to be honest with you. You ever have the enemy do that to you? Just start to kind of just bring back, well, hey, remember this and remember that. And remember when you said this and you didn't do it? Remember when you said you told God and then you didn't do what you told God? Just this laundry list of sins, this laundry list of things that the accuser brings against Christian in the book. But I love Christian's response. Listen to what, how Christian responds to the accuser. Christian's response to the accuser is full of humility and faith. This is what he says. All this is true and much more. And that's powerful. 
All this is true and much more which thou hast left out. See, when the accuser comes and wants to remind us of our sin, we, not in arrogance, not in pride, I I say this in how I respond. I smile and I say, yep. And by the way, you didn't mention this one. You didn't mention this one. There was this one and this one and that one. See, yeah, it's all those things and so much more. Listen to what he says. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. But besides, these infirmities possessed me in that country. For there I sucked them in, and I have groaned under them, been sorry for them, and have obtained pardon from my prince. See, when the accuser comes against Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, I love the way John Bunyan depicts this. The accuser comes and reminds the Lundersons, and the Christian says, yep, and so much more. And yeah, I did these things. I love that it says, I sucked them in and I groaned under them. I allowed them into my life and then I sustained under them in agony because I knew it wasn't what God would have for me. But I was sorry for them. Now, Pilgrim's Progress is obviously depicting this in a very literary form. I look at that as a form of repentance. I've turned from them. And he says, and my prince, remember who we mentioned earlier, who's merciful and ready to forgive, has pardoned me. I love that the character Christian admits all this is true and much more. He knows his sin. He knows he is undeserving of God's grace. He's very aware of that fact. Then reminds the accuser that he has been pardoned by his prince. Now, when you read on in the book, you're going to find out this causes Apollyon to become enraged. He gets so angry in the book. As is the case with your enemy, Satan. When you speak truth to the enemy, when you say, yes, accuser, you're right. I've done those things and so much more, but God has forgiven me because of his grace. And I'm going to praise the riches of his grace. He hates hearing the goodness of God and the riches of his grace. And so when your accuser comes against you and begins to speak these things into your heart and mind, you merely stand on the truth of God's grace and he will become enraged. But ultimately, James says, when you resist the devil, he will flee. And so he's going to get angry. He's going to get mad. Why? Because the last thing Satan wants is to hear anyone or anything praise the glory of God. But ultimately, here's the crazy part about all this. Ultimately, even the demons have to praise God. Even Satan knows who God is. And that's really why he gets enraged because he knows he is not the victor. He knows God is greater. And he tries to deceive. He tries to accuse, but he knows the truth. One day, God will see justice done, and Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. So what is our defense? So we talk about the accuser, that first section dealing with our accuser. But what is our defense? Go over to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. See, in the same way that Christian in Pilgrim's Progress talks about the the prince being the one who forgives, the one who is pardoning him. We also have to realize that our prince, the prince of peace, Jesus himself, the Messiah, he pardons us through his death, burial, and resurrection when we receive that gospel for ourselves. But he's not only the one who pardons us by his sacrifice. Remember, he's the judge. He's also the one that speaks in our defense. You see, our defense is clear. Satan is the accuser, but Jesus is our advocate. 
Satan is the accuser, but Jesus is our advocate. 1 John 2.1 says this. My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. I always have to mention this. What's, what's the, what are we striving for as followers of Christ? Do we sin that grace may abound? Romans 6, God forbid. So what do we strive for? We strive to be pleasing to the Father in all things. Through the inworking of the Holy Spirit, by the word of God, by the strengthening of the gifts of the Spirit, we desire, our hearts cry, is, Lord, I don't want to sin. I don't want to mar the name of Christ. I don't want to hurt those around me. I don't want to hurt myself. I want to please you because you've done everything for me. That's what we're striving for. But I love that John doesn't stop there with a period and go, that's it. Don't sin. And if you do, oh, well, you're on your own. The verse continues. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, what's the desire? This is where we get so mixed up in Christianity today. There's the thought in Christianity that says, you know what? Because of grace, you can do whatever you want. I mean, not, they don't encourage you to sin per se, but it's like, no big deal. Yeah, just live how you want. It's fine. It's kind of a grace that covers all sin, so therefore sin as much as you want really doesn't matter. Then the other side is we preach you're saved by grace, but then when you are open and admit that you've sinned in some way, these kind of churches that we tend to call legalistic churches really don't want you to be honest. They want you to hide your sin, be quiet about your sin, don't talk about your sin, just push it down. Hey, it's fine. We all are there, but don't mention it. Because if you mention it, we're going to have to bring you in front of the church and, you know, basically just blast you because you're just honest in your sin, even though we all sin. But we all keep it quiet except for you. You opened your mouth. Now we need to make an example of you. So it's either, hey, just grace. Do whatever you want. No one cares. Whatever. Or it's, man, you better not ever say anything and admit that you're actually human and have sin issues because then you're going to make our church look bad. See, somewhere we have to find the biblical balance of that. What is that? We strive to sin not. We desire to please God in our hearts and minds. We desire to live in a way that honors him. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So we are saved from our sin. We are redeemed. We are made new. We're striving to please him in all things. And if we fall into a sin decision, we repent of it. We turn from it. And we desire to to grow in that intimacy with the Father again because we have a defense who speaks on our behalf. We have a defense against the accusations. His name is Jesus. When we were washed by the blood, we were a new creature and God sees us different than we see ourselves. When we were washed by the blood, we became a new creature and God sees us different than we see ourselves. I want to look at an example of this going back to the Old Testament I know we're kind of flipping around. Go back to Zechariah. Towards the end of the Old Testament books, Minor Prophet, Zechariah chapter 3. I just love this passage and what it represents. Now, when you're in Zechariah, you're going to find out this is obviously a minor prophet. He's prophesying of things to come. So there's some symbolism here of what this represents. But I want us to see the heart of this as well. Some of your Bibles, if you're using a printed Bible or maybe even in digital form, you probably have a heading above chapter 3, something like Joshua cleansed and reclothed. And it's an amazing picture for us to understand, not only as followers of Christ, but also to see that our God's character has never changed. So Zechariah 3, 
in verse 1. And he showed me, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. Now this isn't necessarily just speaking about Joshua as an individual. He's the high priest. He's representing the nation. So it's saying as a nation, they're in filthy garments. Their sin is before the Lord is the idea here. But I do believe that we see this picture later in the New Testament when we are washed new. goes on to say this in uh, verse, where are we at here? Verse 4. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then shalt thou also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts. And I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. Now, there's a lot going on here, again, dealing with the nation of Israel and so on and so forth. But I want us to see the picture of this. God's character, God's hearts. Joshua, the high priest, represents a people, a nation, filthy garments. But God chooses to show grace. Let's just stand back for a second. Why is Satan there? Why is Satan in this scene? To accuse. To accuse Joshua. To accuse the nation. To point out their sin. But God chooses to rebuke Satan and cleanse Joshua. And cleanse the nation. Not only does he cleanse Joshua and give him new garments to represent a new standing, he also puts him in a position of leadership. It puts him in charge. Says, now, is it just do whatever you want, Joshua? No, he says, you need to walk in my ways and follow what I've laid before you. And we need to understand we should sin not and walk in the things that would please God and honor God in these things and strive for those things. But do you notice the cleansing came before the commission of service? Do you notice he didn't say, okay, now Joshua, if you walk in my ways and you do this and you do this and do this, then I'll give you a new garment. Then I'll wash you. Then I'll make you clean. Do you notice he says, no, 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 I'm going to wash you and cleanse you and cover your sin and take your iniquity. And now I'll put you in service. What does God do for Isaiah? We've been studying Isaiah on Wednesday nights. What does God do for Isaiah? Isaiah confesses his sin and confesses the sin of his people. God cleanses him and then says, hey, by the way, we need someone to go in our stead. Who will go and stand for us and speak for us? Who will serve us? And he puts Isaiah in commission. He puts him in service. See, here in Zechariah, I believe we see the very character of God that existed from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through to the book of Revelation. It's a God that desires to forgive, desires to cleanse, desires to reclothe us In his garments, and for what reason? So when somebody comes to us and says, I can't believe God's grace could forgive someone like you, you praise God's grace with them. When you tell yourself, I can't believe God could ever forgive someone like me, we praise his grace. What does Ephesians say? To the glory of the riches of his grace, we testify and we praise him. See, we have to get this. The cleansing came before the command to walk after God. 
we've put that backwards in our lives. We think if I could just do this right, then God would forgive me. If I could just be good enough, then God would cleanse me. If I could just go to church enough, then God would forgive me of my sin. Listen, that's not how we find Christ. What does Paul say? Did you find it by doing the law? Were you saved and redeemed by doing the law? No, no, no. You were saved by his grace. And so guess what? As a follower of Christ, we've received Christ. We desire to please him. But what happens when we get off course, when we drift, when we make a sin decision? We start to think, oh, man, was I really saved? Can I really be saved and make a sin choice like this? You were cleansed before he called you to be faithful. Don't doubt the cleansing in Christ because the enemy wants to accuse you of past sins. God not only washes Joshua, but places him in service over his house. This actually reminds me of Peter. After denying Christ three times, Jesus forgives Peter and then grants him the privilege of preaching on the day of Pentecost. Probably one of the most impactful, powerful sermons outside of the sermons of Christ that were ever preached. I mean, this is the foundation of the church, and he uses Peter, the one who said things that nobody should have said to Christ. No, Jesus, don't go to the cross. What are you talking about? You're not going to die on the cross. No, that's silliness. No, I'm the greatest apostle. I'm the one that's really in charge. Hey, here, I got an idea, Jesus. Let's build three different altars, and we'll worship you, Elijah, and Moses equally, which is called blasphemy idolatry. Here, Jesus, let's do that. That's a good idea. And that's the one that Jesus uses to preach on the day of Pentecost. That is really up until the calling of Paul in Acts chapter 9. Really, Acts is all about Peter. Those first eight chapters or so, it's got Stephen in there, chapter 7. But really, up until that point, it's really Peter's the, the main guy that God is using to do all these great things. The very guy that denied Jesus three times to a teenage girl because he was afraid of possible persecution. See, this is where the accuser will say to you, yeah, but, yeah, but you did, yeah, but you did. And you just silenced them by saying, I've done that and so much more. But I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. His grace is greater. We need to realize there are two different approaches. Two different approaches between Satan and Christ. The devil knows your name, but calls you by your sin. That's one approach. The devil knows your name, but calls you by your sin, identifies you by your sin, brings your sin out before you. God, however, knows your sin, but calls you by your name. See, in Christ, he knows your sin. God knows we've sinned, but aren't you thankful but he doesn't call you by your sin. He calls you by your name. And by the way, it's the new name that's written in the Lamb's book of life. Man, he calls you by your name. The one that could judge. By the way, we don't answer to Satan when we stand before God. Satan's not going to be in the courtroom. He's not going to be the one judging us. He's not going to be the one speaking, prosecuting us, if you will. The only one that the Bible says will judge is Jesus Christ. But if Jesus Christ is our advocate, our defense, then we will not be judged guilty. We'll be judged innocent in him. That we might be presented to him as a glorious church without spots or wrinkle. Do you know what that means? We are going to be perfect before the Father. Sinless before the Father. One day we will stand before him and we will, we will be washed, not only spiritually speaking, but we will be cleansed physically. 
No more temptation, no more sin, no more issues. God will restore us fully in that moment. Christ calls you by your name as his son and daughter, and your sin is as far as the east is from the west. Your sin is gone. See, so when the accuser comes and wants to whisper those accusations, there's nothing to hold against you because it's gone. I mean, you ever stopped and think about the fact that God says, I will choose to forget your sin. I will choose to forget what you've done. Now, this is where, you know, theologians will go, well, how could God forget? He's all knowing. Mm-hmm-hmm. You know, and they'll stroke their beard and they'll do things like that. I don't have a beard. This isn't a beard. This is just chin straggles. I don't know what this is, but if I shave this off, I look 12. So it's got to stay. It's just, I'm sorry. You have to see it, but it has to be there. I already look like I'm 15. So if I shave this off, 12 is not that far away. But how could God forget? Do you know when the Bible says that God forgets your sin? It doesn't mean he, he doesn't actually remember your sin. He is all-knowing. He is omniscient. He knows all things. By the way, he knew every sin you would commit before he ever forgave you in Christ. So that's pretty powerful that he knew what you would do. And he still forgave you. Because his grace is on display. So what does it mean when God says he forgets my sin? You know what it means? It means he chooses to not hold it against me any longer. See, Romans chapter 2 says that the sin of the world is being stored up for the day of wrath. That there's a day where God will pour out the wrath on those that have sinned outside of Christ, that are not forgiven, not redeemed, and he'll pour that out in judgment. And when he says he forgets your sin in Christ, he's saying, okay, I'm not going to hold that sin against you. I'm not going to pour that wrath out on you because that wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ. I'm not going to hold that sin against you anymore. So then when we go before him and we stand before him, we are sons and daughters cleansed. Ephesians talks about this and it's so powerful that we are his bride, the church, and that we are a beautiful church, a spotless church, cleansed of all sin. And not because we cleanse ourselves, but because he chose by his grace to cleanse us. In this life, Satan may use others to do the accusing for him. Sometimes people, individuals, will speak against you and say and try to accuse you of past sins, try to accuse you of things that you've done. See, Satan does it. I believe he attacks our minds and our hearts. And by the way, the flesh loves that. And your flesh will get in alignment with that and you'll feel like it's just a weight on you. Like it's just coming from all sides and you just can't get out from underneath it. It feels just suffocating. But sometimes he'll actually use other individuals to speak your sin against you, to speak and accuse you. How could God ever use you? God could never use someone like you. And I want to remind us that that person is not our enemy. That person is not the one that we're battling against. We're battling against the enemy, Satan. And so what do we do when someone comes against us and speaks our sin against us? We do what Christian did. We just merely are honest and open and say, and I'm not saying we give a laundry list of our sins. Nowhere in scriptures does it say, go ahead and just tell everybody every sin you've ever committed. It's not, you don't need to do that. Because here's the reality. Whether it's this little tiny sin or a big sin or a little sin to you or a big sin to someone else, it's about just saying, yeah, you're right, I've sinned, but praise God, he has forgiven me by his grace. It's just being honest enough to admit in humility that we're not perfect, that we've fallen, that we've failed. And so when others come against you, we speak truth 
We speak grace and we say, listen, in the same way that God has forgiven me, God can forgive you. Others may bring up past sins and want to hold them over our heads and we merely need to forgive them and move on. The same defense is true. We admit, yes, we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but praise God for his grace and his redemption. And the same grace that forgave us is the same grace that does and can forgive them. So let me ask a question this morning. What are those accusations? Is Satan coming against you and trying to remind you of some things? Have you allowed that to distract from your walk with Christ? Have you allowed that to take you out of the race? Have you sat on the sideline and just beat yourself up because you know that the things he's accusing you of is true? Or have you stepped back into the race and said, yes, it is true, but my God is greater. His grace has forgiven me and I will strive to please him in all things. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right there where you are and just The invitation is pretty simple this morning. I just want to encourage you to respond to what God is doing. If you're here this morning and you feel that weight of accusation, you feel that weight of attack, that that Satan, the enemy, is just warring against you. Maybe others have accused and tried to distract and take away from what God is doing in your life. I'm not talking about a brother or a sister in a loving, gracious, humble way coming to us and just encouraging us with a sin issue in our life and encouraging us unto repentance and doing it in a way that is for the glory of God. I'm not talking about that type of relationship with another believer. Praise God for individuals that God will use to encourage our hearts and minds to confess the sins that we've committed to, to draw us back into an intimacy with the Father, to draw us back into that relationship so that we can grow in that connection with him, to remind us that we can be forgiven. Those, those relationships are good and healthy and needful. But I, I want to encourage all of us that if there's someone in our lives that is just merely accusing to destroy, accusing to attack, accusing to tear down, There's no talk of repentance. There's no talk of grace. It's merely to make us feel really bad about ourselves and to doubt the goodness of God in our lives, to doubt the power and the efficiency of the gospel. Then I would encourage all of us to use wisdom in listening to those voices and and responding to those voices in ways that would be pleasing to the Father. Lord, in all these things, we ask that you would just be glorified. We ask that you would give us wisdom and how to apply these things to our lives moving forward. And we thank you for all of this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we have a song of invitation? Maybe you would come and just bend a knee. Maybe you feel that weight of accusation from the enemy, and you'd come and just say, God, thank you for reminding me of your grace today. Maybe you want to come and just say, God, thank you for saving me. That I was, I was lost and undone. I had nothing to offer, but you chose to show me grace. Maybe you would come and just praise him for his grace this morning, for his goodness in our lives. Maybe you'd come and say, God, thank you that you are my defense. Thank you that you go on my, or speak on my behalf, that you go before me. Thank you for being there for me. Whatever it is that God is doing, would you respond to him this morning as we sing this song of invitation?